Nearly 30 years ago, 25, 26 years ago, I was um, with Debbie living in the south coast of England, pastoring a church in um, a town called Bournemouth, which has one of the best beaches in the world, as an aside. And one of my friends had an affair. He was very involved in the church life, and as a consequence of his actions and of his choices, he had to step out of all forms of public service and ministry. One night, at about one in the morning, I was walking along the beach with him. I'm going to change his name to protect his identity. It was dark. It's only the street lamps or the lamps beside the sea that were um, on. And he said to me, Malcolm, the one thing that I take comfort in is that God can't see me anymore. And I said to him, Steve, God can always see you. And he said, that is not helpful to me. And I said, well, I'm not here to be helpful. I need to tell you the truth. God sees every moment. He's present in every square inch of your life. Every decision you make, every action you take, the things that you think no one else sees, the stuff that you have convinced yourself that God can no longer see or hear in you, God can see. God can hear. God is present. And tonight I want to talk to you about that. About the God who sees every part of our lives. The God who is present. The God who, once he makes a commitment to you, never breaks it. And he knows the secrets of our hearts he knows everything that's going on in your thinking. He knows every aspect of my life and your life tonight. And I want to do that by reflecting on a story with you in a moment or two from the Bible that can help you to think about that and what that might mean. My friend, Steve, to you, was comforting himself with the idea that God wasn't there. Sometimes we do that, don't we? We can get ourselves into situations and into circumstances where actually we begin to comfort ourselves thinking at least God can't see. At least God isn't present. At least God isn't looking at me. Like you do when you're a, a child. I don't know if you've ever done this as a youngster, or certainly I have when I was very little. If somebody came into our house and um, you know, I was a tiny tot and, and I didn't really want to look at them, I would either snuggle in behind my mum's leg or put my hand over my face. Uh, the, the, the kind of thought being, if I can't see them, then they can't see me. Am I the only one that ever did that as a youngster? And when you've got your children with you, and um, I saw it happening this morning with one of your children, uh, Pip, um, uh, when they, they, somebody comes up to speak to them and they're a bit nervous about them, they kind of hide in behind somebody in the hope that if they can't see them, then maybe they won't see one another. We can comfort ourselves thinking that in the moments of our darkest or deepest mistakes, we can hide from God and he doesn't see or we can get angry because we think he doesn't see and he hasn't helped. 
and we equate the absence of his intervention in the way that we would want with the absence of his presence. They're not the same thing. Or we can become despondent, brokenhearted, ready to give up because we think God doesn't see. There have been many times in my life when I have been with someone or on my own or facing a challenge and thought, I need to know you're here, God. I need something to hold on to. I'm sure many of you as Christians, if you are Christians tonight, watching online or here, have felt like that. I want to read a story to you about a woman who thought God had abandoned her. It's in the Old Testament. If you have a Bible, could you open it, please, at Genesis chapter 16. It's the story of a woman called, well, it's part of the story of a woman called Hagar. The background to the story is that Hagar is in the household of Abram and Sarai. And God has promised Abram and Sarai that they will have a child. But his promises are slow. They want him to do something quicker. So Sarai and Abram crack a plan together that um, Hagar, one of their household, will become a surrogate mother. They both agree to it. They're both involved in it. Let's read what happens in Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bore him no children. She had an Egyptian slave girl whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, you see that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my slave girl. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived for 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her slave girl, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife. He went to, in to Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my slave girl to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, your slave girl is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she ran away from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave girl of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? She said, I am running away from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will so greatly multiply your offspring that they cannot be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, now you have conceived and shall bear a son and you shall call him Ishmael, for the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He shall be a wild ass of a man, with his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall live at odds with all his kin. So she named the Lord who spoke to her, You are El Roi. For she said, Have I really seen God and remained alive after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Roi. It lies between Kadesh and Vereth. Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. 
God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. It's a terribly sad story, full of heartbreak and pain and intrigue. It's um, terrible to think that this poor woman, Hagar, becomes the butt of both Abram and Sarai's anger and venting. Abram, Sarah blames, Sarai blames Abram. Abram blames Sarai. They pass her about like a sack of potatoes. At no point do either of these people seem to recognize her humanity. They don't seem to see that she's a person. She's just a thing. And Abram says to Sarai, do what you want with her. And Sarai says, well, now that she's carrying your child, she resents me. It's your fault. But it was Sarai that came up with the idea in the first place. And in this tangled weave of blame and accusation and charge and countercharge, somehow this woman's humanity is lost. She's just abandoned in the middle of it all. And she runs away. And as she runs away, she stops by a spring of water in the wilderness, we're told, in verse 7. And the angel of the Lord, a mysterious figure in the Old Testament that seems to somehow symbolize the presence of God himself, comes to her and has a conversation with her. And asks her who she is and where she's, well, doesn't ask her who she is, asks her where she's going and where she's come from and why she's here. And he promises her that he is not going to abandon her. So much so that in verse 13, we read this powerful phrase. So she named the Lord who spoke to her, you are El Ruai. For she said, here I have have I really seen God and remained alive after seeing him? El Roi, the God who sees, or the God who is seeing, the present God, the God who knows, the God who understands. In the New International Version of Genesis chapter 16, verse 13, the English puts it this way. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. What are you facing tonight? What are you going through? God sees. The story contains little indications of hope. If you let them lodge in your heart, you might have come tonight or you might be watching online and you've never heard of this God. Your notion of God is a God who is distant, a God who is far away, a God who is angry, a God who points his finger, a God who is unhappy with you, a God who can never be pleased. You may have been one of those people that has been brought up in the church and you have such a strong idea of the God who is strong. Theological word for that is transcendent. That you end up forgetting that he is also close. The theological word for that is imminent. The God who is strong and powerful and holds the whole universe in his hand and gives breath to every living thing and can take it away at a moment's notice is also the God who is closer than your very breath. 
And it's here in this little church building tonight or in your home, wherever you are in the world, watching, and he sees you. He understands you. He knows you. Think about some of the aspects of this story with me for a moment. But don't think of them only through Hagar's lens. Think of them through your lens. Do you know, the reality is that one of my greatest privileges of life, not the greatest privilege, but one of my greatest privileges is being a pastor. I love it. I often say to people, I wouldn't stoop to be prime minister. Certainly not at the minute. <laughs> um, this, standing up here, talking to you, three or four times a week, depending on how much you can stomach. <laughs> this is the easy bit. It's the kneeling beside you weeping. It's the walking alongside you when life doesn't make sense, but that's the hard bit. It's trying to make sure that you remember that God sees you. It's knowing when you should say something and knowing when you shouldn't. It's trying to help people whose lives seem to be collapsing around them to understand that God is still present and still loves them. That's the hard bit. We sang a song earlier on about our dependence on God, our reliance on God, our need of his grace. And some of you will have seen that I got on my knees at the front because I feel that acutely. Not just because of the crises that we are going through, not just because of the heartbreaks that people are facing, but I, I can't do this thing called pastoring unless God sees you. I can't help anybody. I can't make a blade of grass grow a millimeter a year. I have no capacity in my life to help another human being unless God is doing something. Do you understand that? Nobody can ultimately carry you through what you face other than God because no one can fix you. Only God. And he can only fix you. He can only help you. He can only come alongside you if he understands you and knows you and sees you. He doesn't do it from a distance. He doesn't shout at us through the eons of time. He is close enough to speak without shouting and you can hear him. That's what Hagar discovered. Think about this woman for a moment with me. Abandoned by her mistress, abandoned by her master, rejected by them both, used as an object, on the run, because of life's circumstances, because of other people's attitudes, and because of other people's actions. Verse four of the verse that we of the chapter that we read to you talks about her conceiving. Verse five talks about her resenting, um, or verse four talks about her resenting Sarai. Verse five shows you Sarai complaining to Abraham. Verse six shows you Abraham complaining to Sarah and Sarai, and as a result, Hagar's cast out. What choice did this woman have? What was she supposed to do? when the people that owned her forced her into this situation. And yet she ends up the victim again. Without becoming too political about it, without going into too much of the detail and intrigue, how many abused women live in Northern Ireland? How many are sitting here or listening online? Husbands that abuse you, 
that control you, manipulate you, that hurt you, that again and again take advantage of you. How many of you, and I'm speaking to the ladies for a moment, have been made to feel like objects rather than people, have been stripped of your dignity and your worth and your value by people around you. God will never do that with you and the church should never condone it. I don't mean to be aggressive or difficult, but if there's any woman listening to me tonight here or online and that is how your husband makes you feel or somebody else makes you feel in this church or any other church, I don't care what their job is, it's wrong. And I want you to know that we will not condone such behavior. You matter to God. Your life matters to God. Your story matters to God. Your humanity matters to God. Your identity matters to God. And people sometimes think that I can be a bit strong about this. I will have nothing to do with chauvinism and domination of women by men in any part of my life, and certainly not in this church or in any other church where Jesus' name is honored. You matter. And God doesn't treat you like that. You see, you find Hagar here, stripped of her humanity, on the run, about to give up, beside a spring, and God comes to her. He sees her. He knows her. Verse 8 tells us that he knows her name. He calls her Hagar. Look at the pathos and the beauty and the power of verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness on her last legs, hiding beside water. Who wouldn't if you were in that situation? And he knows her name. He knows her story. Hagar, the slave girl of Sarai, he describes her as. Brothers and sisters, God knows your name. You're not forgotten in a crowd. You're not lost amidst the faces of need in the world. Whether you're a man or a woman, he sees you. He knows your name. He knows your story. He says to Hagar, the slave girl of Sarai, he knows how other people see you. He knows how other people treat you. He knows the way other people have categorized you or pigeonholed you. But then he does something profoundly beautiful. He asks her two questions. He says, where have you come from? What are you running from? And where are you going? I wonder what her answers were. We can guess what the answer to the first one is, can't we? Where have you come from? I've come from an abusive relationship. I've come from being manipulated. I've come from being objectified. I've come from being rejected. I've come from being threatened. I've come from a place of fear. I've come from insecurity. I've come from isolation. I've come from a place where I thought I was going to be trapped forever. I've come from a place of rejection. We know what... The answer to that question is it's relatively straightforward from reading the story. But what about where are you going to? Where's she going? Does she have anywhere to go? 
The text doesn't seem to say so. I wonder how many people here tonight have been running away from something for years, but you don't know where you're running to. I wonder how many people in families or in jobs or in situations have been running all their lives away from something. But what are you running to? What is the answer to your circumstances? Who's going to sort it out? Where's the landing place going to be? Because in the end, we can run all our lives and get nowhere. Don't spend your life running away. Do you hear what she says at the end of verse 8? I am running away from my mistress, Sarai. But she didn't see where she was going to. Stop running. Stop running from the failure. Stop running from the disappointment. Stop running from the hurt. Stop running from the sorrow. Stop running from the rejection. Stop running away from what people think about you. Stop running away from the judgment. Stop running away from all of that. Stop running away from unanswered prayers and unspoken dreams. Just for a minute tonight, here in this place, stop. Give yourself 10 minutes to consider this, that God is here and that he knows your name and he knows what you're running from and he's the only place and the only person that can help. Nobody else, no pastor, no leader, no church, no denomination, no structure, nothing else, no one else can help you. Whether you are the most godly woman or man in the world or the person seeking God for the first time, only God. And his grace and his mercy has the power to reach into your heart. He knows exactly what you're running away from. He knows exactly what you are facing. I think the hardest part of this story for me is that he tells, he tells Hagar to go back and to trust him. God doesn't always tell us to go back. Sometimes he tells us to stop. Sometimes he tells us to take a breath. Sometimes he meets us and leads us into new territory. But here with Hagar, and we'll come back to her story a little later on in her life in a moment or two, he tells her that he sees her and he knows her. I can't tell you what God will tell you to do, but I know he sees you. We're told as we read this story a little bit more closely that God promises to be with her son. Her son's name, we're told from verse 11, is Ishmael. That word in Hebrew means God hears. So suddenly we have two different aspects of God's character. I am the God who sees, and I am the God who hears. And she is to call her son Ishmael. He goes on to describe what this son will be like. He calls him a wild ass of a man. Donkey, in case you're worried. <laughs> he is to be the father of the Arab peoples. And just as Isaac was given a promise, so Ishmael is given a promise. Compare them in Genesis chapter 15, verses 4 and 5, the promise given to Isaac about the Jewish people and the promise given here to Ishmael about his descendants. 
God sees this boy. God sees this child in her womb. God gives him a name. God sees this woman. God sees his story. God knows what's going on in every aspect of Hagar's life. I don't know if you realize this, those of you that are theologians. This is the only place in the entire 66 books of the Bible where any human being give God's and it gives God a name. Nowhere else in the whole story of Scripture does somebody have the privilege of giving God a name. They are given a name of God, but they don't give him the name. This frightened, running, isolated, rejected woman alone is the only person in the whole of the biblical story that gives him a name. And she calls him the God who sees. Or the God who is seeing. She must have told other people because in verse 14, we're told that the well that um, she met the angel of the Lord at is to be called Be'er Lahai Ruai, which in Hebrew uh, means um, the spring of the living one who sees me. Jump forward with me for a moment to Genesis chapter 21, would you? Hagar has her son, Ishmael, and um, is rejected again by Abram, this time Abraham and Sarah. Their names have been changed by God. Listen to verse 15 on. When the water in the skin was gone, this is her running away, she cast the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, do not let me look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept, and God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Do not be afraid. For God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Come, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy. And he grew up, he lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. She was rejected again. But God saw. And God was with her and with her son. I can't help but think of little Eleanor. Verse 20 says, here, God was with the boy. Let me suggest to you with every fiber of my being that this little girl is now with God. And nothing will ever harm her. And her mother and her father will see her one day in all of her potential, just as all of us will, those precious people that we have lost in Christ. God sees, God knows, God understands. And tonight here in this room, 
God sees you. Many years after this story, the offspring of Isaac, through many generations, gave birth to Jesus Christ. And Jesus picks up this idea of God seeing again and again and again. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, he talks about God seeing. And in chapter 6, he says this to people who are worried and anxious about many things God sees two sparrows falling to the ground. He knows the need of every human heart. Do you think he doesn't see you? Do you think he doesn't know what you are going through? What you are facing tonight? When a man called Stephen in the early church was persecuted and ultimately killed for being a follower of Jesus Christ, the story is told in Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8. We are told that as he kneels in front of the people who are killing him, he looks up and he sees God and Jesus Christ looking at him. He sees him. In Hebrews chapter 12, whoever wrote that book, trying to encourage the early church, talks of them coming to the end of the season of their lives and running the race well. And he says to them, look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. And the picture is of him seeing us as we see him. There is nothing that you go through tonight that God doesn't know about. There is no one in this room that God cannot see. There's no hidden secret. There's no area that is off limits to him. Why do I know that? Because here's a promise that Jesus made to his people and Jesus never breaks his promises. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Whatever you are facing tonight, whatever you are going through, God is the God who sees. And his son experienced his forsakenness, experienced God turning away from him so that you wouldn't have to. I've been a Christian 33 years, nearly 34. And there are many times that I have felt as if God doesn't see me. But he is always there. He always sees. He always knows. But journey back with me for a moment to where I started this message. My friend, Steve, who took comfort from the fact that he didn't think God could see him because it meant he could do what he wants. Are you running from him? Are you running from God? Are you justifying your life because you think he can't see, he doesn't see you? Are you hiding from him? Trying to convince yourself like a child hiding behind her mum's apron or legs that if you can't see God, God can't see you. God can see you tonight. And he wants to come to you to set you free from those things that you're hiding from him. Did God really need to ask Hagar, where have you come from and where are you going? Do you think maybe he knew the answer to that question? Or was it Hagar that needed to be honest? When Jesus said to the man in the New Testament, what do you want me to do for you? Do you think that the man, Jesus didn't know that he wanted healed? Or was it that he had to be honest about it? So where are you 
Where have you come from? And where are you going? And what are you running away from? Because when you come to the end of your energy and strength, God is still there. And what if he's here tonight to bring comfort and hope to you? Maybe you're angry at him because you feel as if he can't see you. Well, he can. Maybe you're despondent because you feel as if you can't see, he can't see you. But he is here. And here's the outrageous claim of Christian faith. For every one of you, here or online, if you will ask God to come and help you, he will. But you need to ask him. You need to be honest with him. You need to be truthful with him. This morning in our church family, I showed a video that I'm going to show again. If you don't want to see the video, but just want to hear the words, you can close your eyes. <laughs> 